Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them, put on them their coats. And he said, and he said on them, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessings to he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. I was thinking this week about the fact that the Bible is a really big book with a lot of stories in it. Have you noticed that? I thought about counting them, and I thought nobody's got time for all that. So then I Googled it, and Google doesn't agree on how many stories there are in the Bible. How are you going to divide it up? But there's a lot of them, hundreds of them. And... Some of those stories, because there's so many of them, they're really good stories. But there's only 52 Sundays in a year, so we we don't preach on all those stories every year. But there are certain stories that we come back to every single year and give some focused attention to them and think about them. We read about the birth of Jesus every year at Christmas, don't we? When the Son of God came to the world and humbled himself. To be born among us as a human being to heal us. And in five days, we're going to gather here in the evening on Good Friday to read the crucifixion story. Think about that moment when the Lord Jesus gave his life for us on the cross so we could be saved. A week from today, we're going to read the resurrection story and talk about Jesus defeating death so that we can be free from death. There's a few others that we'll read every year. But what I want you to think about is the question, why did this story make the cut? Now, I see a few of my Anglican friends that snuck in the back here. They've got, certain, they've got a bigger list they read every year. <laughs> they got a lectionary. We Baptists don't do all that. But this one, even in our Baptist <laughs> calendar, made the cut. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Everybody cut palm branches, they put their coats on the ground, and they sang to him. And as I was pondering and thinking about that question, I really think the answer is summed up by two words in verse 5, if you look with me at that verse again. 
Matthew's quoting the prophet Zechariah, and he says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Here's the two words. Everybody say king, and everybody say humble. Those two words don't generally go together. If you go read the book of Deuteronomy and what it says about what God wants from the kings of Israel, humility is a characteristic. But if you read the history of the kings of Israel, you get another look. Even the greatest kings of Israel, David and Solomon, brought death to thousands of people through their arrogance. Prior to Jesus in the history of the world, Many cultures would talk about certain virtues that were honored, such as justice, courage. But very rarely do you hear anybody talking about the virtue of humility being crucial for thinking about even what it means to be human, much less who God is. The word king means power. Authority, greatness, and church, does Jesus have power? Does he have authority? And he's very great. But those words, power, authority, and greatness, even in our culture today, are not associated primarily with humility, are they? I just typed into Google, define humble, to see what the top definitions were that came up. How do we use the word today? Top definition, having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. That definition does not describe how most of the people that we celebrate in our celebrity culture act, does it? And actually, I would say that definition doesn't even describe Jesus. Jesus knew he was the most important person to ever walk the face of the earth. In this story, he calls himself Lord. It's an interesting thing as we even think about what does humility mean. It does involve having an accurate assessment of ourselves. And we are creatures as well as sinners in need of grace. But being humble doesn't mean having a low self-esteem. It doesn't mean thinking we're worthless. Here's the second definition that popped up on Google of low social, administrative or political rank, which is to say the opposite of a king. So the way the word is defined is often seen as simply being the opposite of the word king. And yet here's Jesus, a humble king. Everybody say a humble king. The point is obvious that Jesus shows us two things going together that do not go together in the world in a way that makes us rethink what does it mean to be great. Makes us rethink power and authority. It also makes us rethink humility. Ultimately, it forces us to wrestle with the question, who is God and who is God calling us to be? So I'm just going to walk through this story and we're going to think about what does it mean that he's a humble king. But first, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me one more time. Would you bow with me and pray? The world needs more of this kind of humble power today. We need the power of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to be silent with me for a moment and let's just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us in a fresh way as we meditate on God's word.
Now, I'll be silent while you pray, and then I'm going to say a prayer for us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name in this place today. We pray that all of us would decrease so that you can increase. I pray that we would leave here seeing your glory more clearly and trusting you more. Jesus, Son of God, we worship you. You are King of kings and you are humble. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. Help me, Lord, to speak every word that you want me to speak and none that you don't and to do so with anointing, power and grace. And would you help us all to have attentive minds to understand and remember and obedient hearts to trust and obey. Let this be a day of salvation, a day of spiritual growth, a day of healing. Lord, I don't know what burdens people are carrying or what wounds everyone has on their heart this meeting, but you are God, our healer. Would you heal us? And, and we pray that for ourselves as individuals, but we pray it for our city. We pray it for our world. We need the healing that only Jesus, the humble king, can bring. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we start thinking about what does it mean for Jesus to be a humble king, we can begin right at the very beginning. Verse 1, Jesus says, Now when they drew, or the text says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem. This is a crisis moment in the Gospel of Matthew. Jerusalem is the center of spiritual life for God's people. It's also the center of their political life and the center of their economic life. And Jesus has been to Jerusalem before, but this year is different. Because in the preceding months, there's been a lot of momentum surrounding surrounding the ministry of Jesus. Expectations have been growing. The crowds that follow him have been increasing in size. Many of those crowds are beginning to rumble about Jesus being the king, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And as Jesus has intensified his teaching and his ministry, the opposition to Jesus has also grown. So that many of the political and religious leaders are planning to try and trap him when he comes to Jerusalem by getting him to say something publicly so they can get rid of him. So everybody's got expectations. Expectations are high. As Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, his friends and followers are expecting this to be the moment when he will flex his power to establish his kingdom on earth. His enemies expect to trap him, condemn him, kill him and humiliate him. I want you to think about that for a second. Those are opposite expectations. His followers expect him to flex his power and establish his kingdom. His enemies expect to trap him, humiliate him, and kill him. And in one sense, they're both right. Jesus is, in this moment, going to put on display his power more than ever before by defeating sin, Satan, and death. But he's going to do it precisely by laying down his life. In one sense, they're both right, but in another sense, they're both wrong. His followers are expecting that God bringing his salvation through his Messiah means to save us from those people over there whom we fear. 
We need a strong man to save us from those people over there whom we fear. Does it feel like in the world today there's still a lot of us who are trying to find a strong man to save us from those people over there whom we fear? We look for religious leaders like that. We look for political leaders like that. But Jesus is going to show a different kind of power because he came to bring a much deeper and broader salvation. He knows that their biggest problem is not those people over there whom they fear. Their biggest problem is sin in their own hearts. He came to save them, not by defeating their enemies, but by forgiving them and their enemies and reconciling them to God and to their enemies. And for all of that, something much greater than military and economic power is needed. Verses two through six show Jesus orchestrating events. Telling his disciples to go get the donkey. He's got a big plan and he's orchestrating everything that's happening. Often Jesus is, has been hiding from the crowds, but this is a moment where Jesus is carefully orchestrating a big public spectacle. It's not what he usually does. But what he's wanting to do is to put on public display that he is, in fact, the fulfillment of what the prophet Zechariah prophesied long ago. He's telling them what to do. He's in control of the situation. And verse 4 says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then Matthew quotes verse 5, which we've already read. As I've already emphasized, Matthew wants us to see Zechariah was prophesying a humble king. He was prophesying a humble king who would come to save the world. Most of the first readers of Matthew's gospel, though, would have had a, a much deeper and more intimate familiarity with Zechariah's prophecy than we do. So I want to read a few more verses to help you get the context. If you've got a Bible, you can flip over to Zechariah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. You can just listen. Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then it goes on to say this in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. Now, up until that moment, it sounds like. The Messiah is coming as a military conqueror to defeat the political enemies who are oppressing Israel. And there's other things in this surrounding context that sound like that. But this is very interesting. It says when he comes and conquers, he's going to speak peace to the nations. Everybody say peace. Somebody knows what Hebrew word this is. If you know it, you can shout it out. What is that? That's right. Everybody say shalom. He came to speak shalom, not just to Israel, but to the nations. Y'all know what that word shalom means, because I define it every other Sunday anyway. But shalom is the fullness of God's peace. The fullness of God's life at work in his creation. When shalom is there, every individual created by God is rightly related to God. 
and rightly related to ourselves and rightly related to one another. We're all flourishing in our kind. When God's shalom comes, nothing is broken and nobody's left out. Doesn't that sound like what we want, church? And he came to bring peace to all the nations, every language, every skin color. Zechariah goes on to say, this is Zechariah 9, halfway through verse 10. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, there is power here. There is authority here. There's power and authority far beyond anything achieved by David or Solomon or any other political ruler in the history of the world. But it's a different kind of authority because he didn't ride in on a war horse. He rolled in humble and mounted on a donkey. I remember preaching this bilingual with ever last year. And I said it wasn't just a little donkey. It was a little donkey. And he said burrito and everybody laughed. Jesus rode in on a burrito. And he's coming in humbly to establish his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And then listen to verse 11. If you're there in Zechariah 9, you can follow along with me. As for you also. Speaking to his people, Israel, God says, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. He's coming as a king, a humble king. To establish his power and his authority to the ends of the earth. To bring shalom to all nations and to rescue his people from the water, the waterless pit. His people are prisoners and it's by the blood of his covenant that they're going to be set free. Zechariah is saying and Matthew is saying and Jesus is putting on display. I'm a new kind of king. And I'm establishing a new kind of kingdom. Not the kind that enforces its boundaries through violence. It's a peaceable kingdom, a kingdom of shalom in which prisoners are set free by grace because of the blood of the covenant. As we keep reading through the story, verses seven through nine tells us the crowds give Jesus a royal welcome. They're waving their palm branches, they're putting out their cloaks, like making a red carpet for Jesus. And they're shouting to him, Hosanna. That's the Palm Sunday word. Everybody say Hosanna, which means the Lord saves. And their words are an allusion to Psalm 118. Jared read it to us a moment ago during our corporate prayer, our Psalms reading. And verses 25 and 26 in particular, if you glance over, talk about crying out, Lord, save us. That's what Hosanna means. Lord, save And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalm 118. So they are acknowledging correctly, Jesus is the Messiah, the king whom God has promised to come and save us. They're giving him a royal welcome. The crowds are. And undoubtedly, many of these crowds are going to be among his disciples after he dies for the sins and rises again. And the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. But it's probably the case that. Some of these people in this crowd are also going to be among those who in a few days are going to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. They're acknowledging him as the king, but they don't really understand what kind of kingdom he's bringing. You'll remember they don't want Jesus to be set free. Who do they want Pontius Pilate to be set free? Somebody can shout that out too. you are doing good today. Everybody say Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was trying to use military power to throw off. Roman oppression. 
They wanted a different kind of king. They wanted a strong man to save them from their enemies out there instead of a humble Lord to save them from the enemy in here. They wanted to defeat their enemies instead of being reconciled to their enemies. Interestingly, right now they're quoting Psalm 118 to praise Jesus. But the verses that are going to be quoted from this song after his resurrection over and over again are verse 20, verse 22. You can glance over, glance to the left in your bulletin. Look at Psalm 118, verse 22. The apostles would love to quote this verse. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. How is the king of kings going to do this thing? How is he going to bring healing and shalom to the world? He's going to become the cornerstone on which God's kingdom is going to be built. It's all about Jesus. But before he can become the cornerstone, he must be rejected. He must be despised. He must be humiliated. This is a different kind of power. It's a power that looks like weakness to the world. It's a wisdom that looks like folly to the world. As all of the fanfare continues, some people in the crowd are just getting sucked into the drama of this moment, and they're asking one another, who is this man? Who is this man? And in verses 9 through 11, we see how people were identifying him. They call him son of David, which he was. He's the heir of David who came to be the king promised long ago to bring God's kingdom to the earth. They call him he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's that too. He does come in the name of the Lord. And they call him the prophet Jesus. As we saw last week, he is a prophet. He identifies himself as a prophet. Every word Jesus speaks is the word of the Lord. He's the great prophet. And yet the reason they don't understand his kingdom is because... Jesus is much more. I mean, they just gave him some very high titles. Son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord. Prophet. But he's more. The reason we read this story every year. Is because it shows us the humble God. The creator of the world. God coming near to us in humility. To heal us with power that looks like weakness. God coming near to us in humility to save us from our folly with wisdom that looks like folly to the world. We read this story because Jesus is none other than God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, coming to expose our idolatry of worldly power. Our faithlessness in the promises of God. At the same time that he reaches out to us in love. This moment, riding in humbly on a donkey, is foreshadowing what's going to happen on Friday. A further step of humility. Because the king that they're praising is God coming to lay down his life. To be stripped. To be nailed to a cross. The cross is the symbol of powerless humiliation. 
And yet, this total powerlessness is the single most powerful thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. Because before this moment, sin had a grip on me that I could not break. Before this moment, Satan had a claim on you that you could not revoke. But here is God himself coming as innocent humanity, bearing in himself our guilt and our sin and our evil, our fear, our shame, all the worst stuff that we've done and thought and felt and all of its consequences. Taking on himself the full weight of evil and dying freely. Nobody could have taken his life from him. He could have called down 10,000 angels, he says. This is total power looking like powerlessness. It's a different kind of power that doesn't dominate people, but serves and liberates people. The humility of Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus thinks he's unimportant. By the way, did you catch when he was telling his disciples what to do? First of all, he assumed they would obey him, right? And then he said, if anybody gives you trouble about the donkey, tell them the Lord has need of it. He knows who he is. He's the Lord. Doesn't mean Jesus thinks he's unimportant. It means Jesus lives for the glory of his father and for the good of other people. Jesus is not focused on himself. He's focused on his father and on other people. That's why C.S. Lewis was right to observe that humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself so much as thinking of yourself less. It causes us to ask the question, who am I living for? What am I focused on? What am I thinking about and talking about all the time? Being humble doesn't mean having a low self-image. But it means not being self-centered, being God-centered. It's what Tim Keller called the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And that's what we see in Jesus. He's a humble king. Everybody say, a humble king. Now, I'm almost done. But as I think about this story that we read every year, just was praying this week, Holy Spirit, what do you want us to take from this story this year? What do you want us to hear? What do you want us to see? And the first thing, I think the most important thing, is uh, the most simple one. Church, here's what we need to do today. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the humble king. The king riding on a donkey, the king on the cross. Tertullian said he reigned from the cross. In his humiliation, he flexes his power. Look at that humility. Look at that love. Let's fix our eyes on him. And as we're going into Holy Week, let's remember, that's the only one who can save us. That's the only one who can save us. We all came here with personal problems. Anybody got problems? There's only one who can save you. It's God saving you by his humble grace. Our world has problems, doesn't it? 
Just a minute ago, about 90 minutes ago, in youth Sunday school, we asked the youth, what are some of the problems in the world? And they didn't have to hesitate to rattle stuff off. Right? Youth, they were talking about anxiety, and they were talking about depression, and they were talking about war, and they were talking about violence, and they were talking about prejudice in our community, and they were talking about all kinds of different stuff. They could rattle it off. Right before that, we had asked them, when you think of powerful people, who do you think of? And they named a bunch of powerful people, rich people, political leaders, physically strong people, famous people. And we asked them to name humble people. And they talked about their mothers and grandmothers, mostly. There was not overlap on the list. And that means that none of those people by themselves are going to be able to solve our problems, although grandma can help, that's for sure. What we need for the world to be healed is a wedding of power and humility. We need a God of infinite power who comes near to us in humble love. And I just want you to look at Jesus and say, he's the only one. He's the only one who can save us. So everybody say, it's all about Jesus. And if you're here spiritually searching today, step one in the journey is just to say, Jesus, I admit my sin. I admit my need. And I want to trust you. I want to follow you. And, and any of our pastors would love to talk to you about how you could take, take that first step of faith. But here's the second thing that I was thinking the Holy Spirit wants to say to us through the story today. We need to learn to wield the power God has given us humbly to serve others. Now, here's the thing. It's super awkward to teach about humility because I'm self-evidently not very humble. Uh, founder of Prideaholics Anonymous. And I've struggled with it my whole life. As a matter of fact, recently I was reading a classic medieval text about um, humility. And I've noticed that when contemporary writers write a book about humility, eventually everybody clowns on them. They like get put on blast on social media. How does this guy think he's humble? So it was amusing me when I read this famous medieval text by a great saint from the Middle Ages. One of his own disciples said, this is a great book written by a great saint, our spiritual teacher, who excelled in all virtues except for humility. <laughs> they were clowning a thousand years ago, guys. So that doesn't stop me, though, from wanting to be humble when I grow up. And here's what I want us to think about as we're trying to learn how to wield our power humbly. I think that we're aware of the fact that power can be misused, right? It can be misused, and, and it brings a lot of temptations with it. And when it's misused, we call that abuse, we call that oppression, and, that, and it's a big problem. But here's the thing, power really just means the ability to do stuff. The ability to do things. And the solution to the problems in the world is not for people made in the image of God, whom God has given power for good, to say, I don't want to use any power because I don't want to misuse it. Listen, friends, if parents don't use their power to take care of their kids, we call that neglect. Which is another form of abuse. So what we're talking about is learning, as we look at Jesus, learning from him to say, I'm a creature who needs your grace. I'm a sinner who needs your grace. I'm also made in the image of God and filled with the Holy Spirit. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, part of what the Spirit does in you is make you more humble and empower you for service. 
which means looking at our time, looking at our resources, looking at our schedules, our bank accounts, looking at all the different gifts that God has given us and saying, how can I lay it down for the glory of God and for the good of my neighbors? We need to learn from Jesus how to wield the power he's given us humbly to serve others. And I'm almost done, but here's the third thing. I think especially right now in this moment, church, we need to beware the idolatry of worldly power. I don't want to talk about this too long right now. But we live in a culture with several idols. Probably self is our favorite idol, right? But definitely one of our idols is power. And many of us, probably all of us, at some level, are being formed by various formative forces in our culture. The news station, social media, powerful money-making industries with carefully designed mechanisms for manipulating our brains that make money out of continuing to stir up in us fear of them over there. And part of fear in them over there is, so we need a strong man to represent our side to help us defeat them. This is probably most obvious with politics, right? Now, this is a diverse enough room. I think we've got about seven or eight ethnicities in here that uh, we can be honest about the fact. If you didn't know it, here you go. You can get shocked. We have both Democrats and Republicans in the room. <laughs> Everybody turn to your, na- your neighbor say, Jesus loves you anyway. And I mean, some of y'all are like real Democrat and real Republican, okay? And here's the thing. Each of y'all keeps getting your guy elected and hasn't fixed it yet. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in the process. Y'all know I'll go get involved in the process if I need to. As far as civic engagement as the children of God. But church, Psalm 146 says, put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Barabbas can't get it done. Only Jesus can get it done. And we're about to go to an election cycle. And I already got a little PTSD from the last cycle when I opened the news this week. It's about to be crazy. But wouldn't it be amazing if the people of God in an increasingly polarized and tribalistic culture that's being catechized by social media and cable news. Instead, we were catechized by the word of God and our eyes were fixed on Jesus. And when debates came up, we were the people who knew how to love everybody, even when we disagreed. Fix our eyes on Jesus, wield our power to serve others and beware the temptation to put our trust in worldly power. That's why we read it every year. I want to invite you to stand up with me. And. As we're about to respond to the word of God through singing one more song, I just want to first be still in his presence. I invite you just to bow your head. And I want to pray. And as we're praying, I just want to ask you to fix your eyes on Jesus, the humble king. He's the only one who can save you from the stuff you fear. He's the only one who can reconcile you to the people you fear.
want to invite you to pray in your own heart that the Holy Spirit will show you how he's calling you away from the things that the false hopes that the world puts their trust in so that he can call you back to Jesus. Whatever he puts on your mind, I just want to urge you to give it to him. He saved and forgave these same people who praised him one day and then yelled crucify him a few days later. He wants to do it to you too. Let's open our hearts to him now. Jesus, we repent of trusting in the things the world trusts in. We repent of putting our hope in the wrong places. Lord, it's easy to criticize the culture, but we acknowledge that very often we've been conformed to the culture more than being transformed by your gospel. So we're asking for your help. Holy Spirit, free us to trust in Jesus alone. Free us to worship Jesus this morning. Lord, free us from pride, including the kind that looks like false humility and neglect. Free us to use the gifts, the power, the resources you've given us to serve others. And Jesus, we pray for our church, for our city, for our nation, and for the world. Only you can bring shalom to the nations. So we pray that your kingdom would come. Your will will be done on earth 